0: This is The Guardian. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard. But now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehostcom wondersuite Science Weekly is supported by BetterHelp. Here's a question: If you had an extra hour in your day, what would you do with it? Watch TV? Read a book? Meet up with a friend? Maybe a little nap? A lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time, but for what? Perhaps to best answer that, you need to work out what's truly important to you, then make that a priority. Therapy can help you work out what's most important to you. It isn't just for those who've unfortunately experienced trauma in their lives. Therapy can be helpful for learning positive coping skills and for setting boundaries. It can empower you to be the best version of yourself. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com scienceweekly today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash There's
1: a battle brewing over the largest ecosystem on planet Earth.
2: It is an amazing reservoir of biodiversity. Everything from Dumbo octopus to blind white yeti crabs that farm bacteria on their arms to sharks that are able to glow in the dark, coral and sponge species that can live to more than 4,000 years old.
1: Because the deep ocean is also home to vast reserves of what are called polymetallic nodules, which mining companies say are essential for our green future.
3: What we need are base metals that we can build batteries and build the wind turbines and the solar panels so we can move away from fossil fuels and address climate change.
1: But scientists are warning that exploiting this resource could be catastrophic for this vital and mysterious part of our planet.
2: The ocean is really why our planet is still habitable. This potentially could have effects on the ocean's ability to sequester and cycle carbon.
1: Over the past week in Kingston, Jamaica, countries, companies, and activists have been thrashing it out, trying to come up with a decision on the future of deep sea mining. So, what's been decided so far? Who has the final say? And at a time when we desperately need green solutions, is deep sea mining the answer? From The Guardian, I'm Ian Sample, and this is Science Weekly. Chris Michael, you're the editor of the Guardian series Seascape, the State of Our Oceans. First of all, tell me about these polymetallic nodules that are at the centre of this debate about deep sea mining. Why are they so valuable?
3: Well, the nodules are basically rocks. They're the size of footballs, maybe, or large grapefruits. Some of them are much smaller. And there are hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of them scattered on the seabed in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, as deep as six kilometres in an area called the Clarion-Clipperton zone. They've been built up over many millions of years and they contain lots of different minerals, including things like copper, cobalt, manganese, and nickel, which are needed to make electric vehicle batteries and power things like wind turbines that are generally considered to be needed for the green revolution, and also rare earth minerals like yttrium that are hard to find elsewhere. And how do they actually bring them up? Well, they sucked them up. In the 70s, when they were first starting to do this, one of the guys who was involved with it said it was like standing on top of the Empire State Building, trying to pick pebbles off the sidewalk using a long straw at night. And obviously, the tech has kind of come a long way since then, but the principle is still the same. They'll have machines that have a long tube that will suck these nodules up, A lot of the sediment that comes from the seabed will be disturbed. That'll be sucked up as well. And the plan, anyway, is to then take that sediment and return it to the seabed.
1: So why are these companies arguing that we need to bring up these metals so badly? And have they actually got a point?
3: Yeah, in some ways they do if you believe that the climate crisis is a huge problem that needs to be addressed above everything else, which is obviously a valid argument. The minerals are needed in order to make electric vehicle batteries and wind turbines And these nodules, in theory, are an easy way to get them. And how has this moment, July
1: 2023, become so crucial for the future of our seabeds? I mean,
3: what's the background to where we are now? So a couple of years ago, a tiny Pacific Island state called Nauru submitted a request to say that they wanted to start mining the seabed. And they submitted that request in partnership with a Canadian company, called the Metals Company, which is probably the most famous or infamous deep-sea mining firm. And in the rules and regulations for deep-sea mining, it says that if you put it in a request, the International Seabed Authority, which is the sort of quasi-UN organization in charge of regulating seabed mining, the ISA has two years to get its act together and come up with rules and regulations to govern what the seabed, mining would look like. That two-year rule expired on Sunday, July 9th, so just recently, without any decision. And so now we're in a kind of limbo state. The ISA is now meeting to hash it out to try to come up with rules and regulations for something called the mining code, which would then be used to either approve or regulate mining. Who's actually involved in those discussions? Well, the ISA is an odd fish It was set up in 1994 when the United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea was passed, and it has a dual role that many people say is sort of contradictory. On the one hand, it has to regulate and oversee mining operations in the deep. On the other hand, it's responsible for maintaining the environment in a healthy state and protecting what is termed the common heritage of mankind. The ISA itself is made up of 167 member nations, so a bit like the UN plus the EU. Crucially, the United States is not involved. They didn't sign. But a lot of the decisions are made by a council, which is only 36 countries, many of which are themselves involved in deep-sea mining or have projects underway or exploration underway. Within that, there's an even smaller group called the Legal and Technical Commission. They're unelected. There are 30 members of this, individuals, many of whom have direct links to the mining industry. I mean, they work for mining companies. The Legal and Technical Commission are responsible for looking at the contracts that are submitted and deciding whether or not they should go ahead. All of that happens behind closed doors. There's no oversight. And if they say a mining contract should be approved, you need a two-thirds majority in the council to override that. A lot of the power rests with a very small group of people who have connections to mining in many cases and don't have any environmental or scientific background necessarily.
1: Chris, how have these discussions been going? I mean, have we had any sort of significant moments along the way, or is it all a bit of a closed shop at the moment?
3: Well, the council is very unlikely to come up with rules in time. One thing that they might decide to do is to say, well, okay, sure, the two-year rule is passed, but we don't want to sleepwalk into deep sea mining, as it were. So let's put in place a temporary rule that says we shouldn't approve any contracts without first getting these environmental rules, and better scientific understanding of what's actually down at the bottom of the ocean in place. There have also been calls by a number of countries, a growing number, Canada, Ireland, Sweden, Germany, to declare a full moratorium on deep sea mining, where there's essentially a ban while we try to figure out exactly what the environment is down there. That could be passed by the Assembly, which is the meeting that happens next week of all 167 nations plus the EU. And it's not just countries that have been opposing it. Major multinationals like BMW, Volvo, Samsung have also said that they would not use minerals produced by deep-sea mining in their products. Why is that? Why are the multinationals taking that stance? So there's a sort of question over whether or not these minerals are really needed. A lot of people say that the tech is changing quite quickly. For example, just last week, Toyota came out with what it says is a new solution for a solid state battery uh, for electric vehicles which was you know a few years ago considered the holy grail uh, it would allow obviously the range of electric cars to be much higher and so there are many you know there, there are many new batteries that may not require as much lithium as they do now and i think these companies are kind of getting ahead of it by saying well you know we want to transition to a green economy but not at the expense of a beautiful pristine untouched wilderness <laughs>
1: One scientist who's at the meeting is marine biologist, Dr. Diva Amon. She's director of Species, an ocean conservation group based in Trinidad and Tobago. She's joined the calls from other conservationists to pause deep sea mining until more is known. I spoke to Diva before she headed out to Jamaica, and she started by telling me just how little we understand about the deep sea.
2: This is an incredible and poorly, still poorly known part of our, of our planet. You know, um, far less than 1% of the deep sea has ever been um, seen with human eyes or seen with a camera. We have higher resolution maps of the surface of Mars, Venus and the moon than we do of our own ocean floor. So this means that when we're thinking about the deep sea floor, we could be missing entire mountains. This is how little we know. However, the work that's been going on for the last century or so in the deep ocean has shown us not just this incredible array of biodiversity, the incredible array of habitats they live at, but also that the deep sea is really important. This includes links to fisheries that billions rely on. This includes um, climate regulation through the cycling and sequestering of carbon and the absorbing of heat. This potentially in the future will provide new compounds for biotechnology and medicine. We know that, for instance, antibiotic resistance is going to be one of the greatest challenges to face humanity in the future. The deep sea is a pretty important place.
1: Now, it could be that the next lot of machines that head down into the deep are not to improve science, but to mine for minerals like nickel and cobalt. So, How does that kind of deep sea mining actually work?
2: What is likely to happen is that there will be enormous machines sent down to the deep sea floor, picking up these polymetallic nodules and also disturbing at least the top 10 centimetres of the sedimented seafloor, which is, of course, where most of the life is. So we know that that actual mining process is going to result in the direct removal and destruction of the seafloor habitats along with all of the life that is living there. We also know that there are going to be sediment plumes, kind of like dust storms, being created from that mining process. And So those plumes are essentially going to extend the footprint, the mining footprint, for tens if not hundreds of kilometres. And then we also know that there's gonna be potentially contaminant release, as well as increases in noise and light on a scale that has never been seen before in the ocean. Life in the deep sea is incredibly slow. Animals move slowly, grow slowly, reproduce slowly, and don't reproduce often. And recovery in these habitats that we're talking about that are vulnerable to deep sea mining, recovery there will take geological time scales because these nodules that are gonna be removed actively form part of the ecosystem, animals attached to them, like corals, sponges, anemones, and use them as an anchor. And so those form at a rate of one to 10 millimetres per million years. And so they are not going to reform except on this enormous timescale, millions of years.
1: Divi, you've just published a paper on one of these areas, which I think just still goes to show that we're learning a lot about them still.
2: Exactly. I've just put, been part of a team that published new research that has revealed that three of the most valuable species of tuna, so big eye, skipjack, and yellowfin, we're going to be seeing increasing overlap with projected deep sea mining operations in the Clarion Clipton zone because of migration as a result of climate change. So these tuna species are going to be moving into the Claring Clifton zone. And that has a potential for increased conflict over and impacts to some of the world's most important fisheries if deep sea mining moves forward.
1: The advocates of deep sea mining, of course, will say, well, look, we need these elements for things like green technology, electric cars, wind farms, and that look, maybe we're going to need to make a trade-off between some biodiversity loss and habit destruction and climate crisis mitigation. How do you respond to that?
2: So first, I'd say that you know, mining the deep sea to solve climate change is like smoking to lower stress. There may be short-term gains, but ultimately there will be long-term grave damage. And I think that concern is really echoed by a lot of scientists around the world, the statement that Close to 800 marine experts have signed, calling for a pause. But also recently, the European Academy's Science Advisory Council came out and said that we are diving blindly into deep sea mining, it conflicts with efforts to protect future generations. And this narrative around needing deep sea mining to solve the climate crisis is actually misleading. One, deep sea mining is not absolutely not going to cancel out terrestrial mining. We also know that the comparisons that have been often been made, that you know, more biodiversity will be lost from mining on land versus mining in the deep sea, that is an inaccurate comparison. And it is inaccurate because, again, we are finding new species every time we go down there. So to understand the risks and to understand what could potentially be lost in the deep sea is
1: premature. The International Seabed Authority is going to have to make a call on this what do you want to hear them say or do on this?
2: I think what would be a responsible um, decision would be for a delay to the start of deep-seabed mining so that a proper assessment can be done as to whether deep-sea mining is actually needed. And also so that many of the puzzle pieces that are missing, like regulations, like a financial mechanism, can be put into place so that If this ever does happen, it can happen in an equitable way and with the least harm to the environment.
1: Chris, Diva mentioned the question of how to share the profits from this endeavour in an equitable way, should it go ahead. And that's going back to this idea of the seabed being a sort of commons. Are there any interesting solutions around that on the table?
3: So it's written into the law of the sea, Article 140, that the proceeds from deep-sea mining have to be shared equitably among the nations of the world. Currently, the plan, which is not yet agreed, is to share 2% of the profits of deep-sea mining among countries. That would eventually rise to something like 6%. Mining companies would get the bulk of it, 70%, and the remainder would go to the sponsoring state. In the case of the metals company, that would be Nauru. 2% is obviously not a lot of money, even of a sort of large pot. The African Union has calculated that that would work out to as little as $100,000 per country per year. But of course, the African Union has other reasons for opposing deep sea mining. Many African countries have huge mining operations of their own and are concerned that deep sea mining will undercut commodity prices. So some countries have quite lofty ideals for why they want to oppose deep sea mining, on environmental grounds, other countries have mining industries of their own that they're keen to protect. You cover all of the many ways we're
1: damaging and also trying to conserve our oceans and how vital they are for the planet's future as the climate crisis takes hold. What are your thoughts on all of this and
3: what's at stake? Well, the ocean is commonly described as a place that we know less about than deep space. But what we do know is how important the oceans are to life on Earth. Every second breath that you take is oxygen that's been generated by the ocean. And if deep sea mining goes ahead, it will be impossible to stop. It's very rare that mining operations start and then stop. It doesn't mean that we will mine less on land. It simply means we'll be mining in more places. It's been noted that we have never gone into a pristine environment and made it better. And many people are saying that we need to draw a line in the sand, as it were.
1: Chris, it's fascinating, hugely important stuff. Thanks so much for coming on. Thanks for having me. A big thanks to both Dr. Diva Amon and to Chris Michael. You can find all our coverage of the meeting and what happens next at theguardian.com. And that's all for today. The producers were Ned Carter-Miles and Madeline Finley. The sound design was by Joel Cox. And the executive producer was Ellie Bury. We'll be back on Thursday...